And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me? 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, as I read this passage. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So again, if you're a guest with us, we just work our way through the scriptures and you happen to have come to join us on this particular Sunday, which is the Sunday that we celebrate communion. It happens to be Pentecost Sunday. And so as we celebrate communion, I'll share a bit about the connection here with communion and Pentecost. But um, in this part of the letter to the Corinthians, we have come to a place um, where Paul is begin to addressing issues in the church, traditions, and how they um, distorted some of them. At first, he said, I praise you because you kept the traditions in a previous passage. And then he went into explaining, but there are these things I don't praise you for because some of the traditions are distorted. And the first one we covered yesterday or last week was about the, about the way that they dress themselves, the, the reverence and order within the church. But now in, in the following passage, he's going, he, as you just heard, he's addressing um, communion. So in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. So 
gathering together with fellow believers, it ought to be a blessing to everyone. A foretaste of heaven, really, as we sing and worship and praise the glory of his grace. Uh, That was such a perfect communion, Dan. Thank you so much for that. What a great reminder that that's why we're here, to praise his glorious grace. But that wasn't what they were doing when they came together. Normally, or, or it should be that we share our hearts, we share our praise for our Savior, we share together with one another how he led us through the week. You know, when our service starts, it's kind of, we try to have to kind of have to settle everybody down because everyone's talking. And some people think that's bad, but I kind of really enjoy it because it means you care about one another, you love one another, you want to find out what happened in others' lives during the week, and you want to share what God did in your lives through the week, and that's a wonderful thing. But when our gathering is not uplifting, it can do more harm than good. And uh, if you've been in Christ a long time and been to many different churches, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When churches get in the middle of this, some kind of division or argument about something, everybody's dreading coming because of the tension instead of the joy and the love and the fellowship. And we're told not to forsake ourselves, for us to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So what do we do? We don't want to come together with this tension. So how do we make it a blessing? We make it a blessing by loving one another and considering others above ourselves. And we do that by focusing on Jesus and refusing to be offended by critical comments. Um, The Proverbs tell us that whoever overlooks an insult is wise. We overlook minor faults and the weaknesses of our fellow brothers and sisters because we know we ourselves have weaknesses and we need their grace and mercy. We refuse to allow a spirit of criticism and fault finding to enter our thoughts. The Corinthian church was failing to make their gathering uplifting and that's why Paul has to address these different issues. So let's see if we see any of these tendencies that he addresses in ourselves. In verse 18, he writes, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Divisions and factions can result in good, separating true believers from pretenders and keeping the doctrine pure, but it can also and usually does develop for the wrong reasons. Factions are listed in the Galatians 5 passage as works of the flesh. Um, In your ESV Bible, it'll use the word divisions. And these words, the word here, faction and divisions in Galatians 5, are the word, the Greek word from which we get our word heresy. How about that? That's because heresies created factions and divisions. Paul is describing a division here in this passage between the rich and the poor. In other words, a class distinction. The lack of class class distinctions was what separated the Christian community from the world around it. Because you had people from every social structure there meeting together and worshiping together as one. And that was so different from the Greek world. 
James describes how some churches give special honor to the wealthy who might attend a worship service. And they say someone comes in with a gold ring and you say, oh, brother, come sit up here in the front, you know, and you give him, give him special priorities. He rebuked them for ignoring the royal law of loving one another, loving your neighbor as yourself, and the sin of partiality. Factions usually form around a personality. As we saw in the first chapter, Paul mentions the different teachers and how one will say, I'm of this teacher, I'm that teacher. And one person has a different slant or interpretation. And that's fine as long as everyone humbly honors one another's opinions when they're based on the word of God. But when a person of influence begins speaking out against uh, another over trivial issues, over doctrines that aren't really clear, that's when division creeps into the church. And a telltale sign is a group of people uttering the same negative catchphrase. You find it, you keep hearing it from different places, the same uh, derogatory comment phrased the same way, and you know, uh-oh, something's going around, and it's not healthy. The dissenter is trying to build a group of followers to have influence and standing in the church. When you ask if, if, they, if they're communicating like that, oh, they'll always deny, oh, no, we don't do that. If someone's told you about it, the dissenter will want to know who it was, not for confirmation, but so that he knows not to speak to them again, not to include them in future uh, conversations. If, it's, if issues like that, those dissensions over non-essential issues are not confronted in an assembly, in a church gathering, it's just going to continue to grow. And that's why Paul addressed it, and this letter to Corinth was read in the church before all the Corinthians believers. You know, when it happens, you don't have to name names, just the issue that's being addressed. And we do it with Scripture. We say why it's debatable or not a, a, not a main doctrine, using Scripture. And we identify factions as a work of the flesh and show the congregation how Jesus prayed for unity in John chapter 17. Openness clarifies and purifies. It's those things that are hidden in the dark that, that aren't brought out into the open that get bigger and bigger and uglier and uglier. Dissenters seeking power or prestige have caused more church divisions than doctrinal differences ever did. In most cases, the factions that separates from the church body, you know, they, if it gets big enough and goes on long enough, that group that is upset over whatever the issue is, they'll leave the church, they'll split the church, but then within a couple years, that group dies out, more often than not, because they get tired of the leader's ego, which is what started it all in the first place. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Think how much Jesus puts up with us, and yet he continues to love us. That's the, the patient, enduring love that we need to have towards one another. That builds the unity of the body. We're to build one another up, not tear one another down or force people to make take sides over non-important issues. 
A good book on the subject is called, if you're interested in this or you've seen this and want to know more about it, it's called Unintentional Dragons. That the, the, influent, the book explains that influential people causing division often do so because they believe they're really trying to help because they know best. They're often the ones who've been there a long time and usually feel they're responsible and faithful and it's up to them to direct the church. But they're rarely among the elders and really care for the flock. When they see their influence waning because of the leadership of the elders is faithful to the word and the congregation's appreciative of their leadership, they'll begin to find fault, often regarding an uh, unimportant tradition. If leadership must address the church over the division or issues that are being misrepresented, they should let the dissenter know ahead of time, of course, so he won't be blindsided and address it with love and back everything with scripture. Some, usually when the person knows that that's about to happen, they won't attend. They leave and try to get others to go with them. In a few cases, I've seen them quiet down, though, and actually become a productive member of the body. It's painful, it's time-consuming, but it's a common occurrence in almost every group of organized people, not just the church. That's because human beings are the same everywhere. And wherever there's organization or power, there's always this kind of uh, division. Divisions can also come from those who become prideful over what they believe their own spiritual state is. Factions often form because of the pride of someone with insufficient understanding of the word of God. And that's the reason elders must not be recent converts. They must be able to teach the word of God. Paul writes that they may become lifted up in pride and fall under the condemnation of the devil if they're young believers. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that there, those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul adds that there will always be factions. It's, it's always going to be a part of any organization over time. And you know what? Some pastors are relieved to read this because they think, oh, it must have happened because I wasn't this or that, or I should have done this or that. But Paul writes, no, it's just a thing that's going to occur. Now, we may have handled something unwisely. We may we probably have things to learn, but it's a part of any organization. Um, the upside is that it reveals those who are genuine. That's what's said here. We cannot see what is in other people's hearts. So we rarely know who is or who's not genuine. But when factions form, then it becomes clear. The ones who are critical over insignificant things who are making it are making attempt to bring no attempt to bring it to leadership or who secretly draw people over to their side on an issue. And then rather than asking people to pray about it and seek the Lord then it becomes obvious. Genuine believers care deeply about unity. They respect God-given leadership and their decisions, unless, of course, leadership is blatantly going against what's clear in Scripture. One example of resistance to leadership that comes from those who are genuine lately in the church throughout the U.S. is this issue of the woke movement. It is sweeping into churches and denominations. 
If the preacher or pastor or elders try to tell you your skin color determines if you're oppressed or an oppressor, remind them that we are all one in Christ. Amen? And that we are all made in the image of God and that we are all sinners and that Christ has redeemed all who come to him by faith. Verse 20 and 22. Now, he's going to change direction. Now he's going to start addressing uh, their communion service, but in relationship to this divisive thing of, of classes that has entered into the church. 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one of you goes with ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You can tell he's, he's upset about this. Paul does not like what's going on. And I think as we go through it, you'll understand why. It's the Lord's Supper. It's not your supper. It's not the place to indulge your appetite or become selfish. Quite the opposite. And I think that's why communion, which we're going to celebrate at the end of the service, evolved from a love feast that it was in the first century to an individual wafer and cup because we avoid all this issue of, of it just being about eating or drinking or uh, being a meal to satisfy yourself. The wealthy were free to come early. You know, the church consisted of, every, as I said before, every part of society. So those who were slave owners or, or merchants or higher class people in the culture, they could come to, to the service anytime they wanted and they'd come early. And they might justify their eating all the food up because, hey, they're the ones that gave most of the money to the church that bought the food, but they were acting selfishly. When those who were released from a long day of labor, the, the slaves that, they, that served them, they would arrive hungry and there were only scraps left. It was humiliating to the laborers because it declared it was all they deserved because, hey, they didn't have anything to give. So here's what you get, the scraps. The way this verse is worded sounds like Paul is really upset with this unchristlike behavior. The opposite should have been true. If they really loved one another, then the wealthy would either wait for the others to arrive or they'd take a small portion knowing that the others would be hungry and needed the food. Jesus asked us to remember him in communion, but they had turned into something that misrepresented him. No wonder Paul was so upset. Verse 23 and 24, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the, the tradition was a revelation from the Lord to Paul, though we also clearly find it in the Gospels. Why did Jesus have to give his body? It's because the soul that sins must die. Death is the just penalty 
for our rebellion against God. But Jesus took our sins upon himself and took the punishment for those sins so we could be free from our sin debt. And communion reminds us of this price that Jesus paid to make this new covenant with us. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So why do we need to remember the blood? The life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17:11. The blood poured out means death. The body had to be broken for the blood to be poured out, causing death, the just penalty for our sins. But there's more to it than we see just reading this passage. This is a fulfillment of a much older covenant promise. And it just happens a few weeks ago in Jesus in the house, we studied the origin of this in Genesis chapter 15. When Abram asked God, how could he know that his heirs would inherit the land? How could he be sure that God would keep his word and fulfill the promise? The Lord told Abram, prepare a covenant ritual. Animals were cut in half and each half laid on opposite side of a bank of a small ravine. And the blood of the animals would rain down into the middle. And the representative or the head of each tribe making a covenant would stand at each end of the ravine. And one by one, they'd walk through the blood around the animals on each side, passing through the middle, the blood of the animals splashing up on their robes. After each representative had done so, they would then meet in the middle. They'd exchange purses, they'd exchange their weapons, and sometimes they would even exchange their firstborn son. That made those two tribes inseparable. It's an irrevocable covenant. And symbolically, it meant that if either side broke that covenant, if either did not defend the other, that they would be like these animals, torn in half. So their wealth was available to the other tribe, their weapons used to defend one another. But when God made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he made Abraham, it says he put him in a trance. So Abraham, Abraham could observe what was happening, but he couldn't participate. Only God went through those animals. It says a smoking pot went through the, it was a manifestation of God going through that blood by himself. Abram couldn't do his part. And God was basically saying, if either of us breaks the covenant, you or I, we will be torn. Our blood will be poured out. Are you starting to get the connection? It's really a lopsided agreement but how it must have reassured Abram. The Jewish people failed to keep the covenant in that they turned against God and worshiped idols. So just as God vowed in that dramatic form of the covenant with Abraham, God in the flesh, Jesus our Savior, was torn and bled for the failure of the Jewish people to uphold their part of the covenant. But it was not for the Jews alone. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explains that the people of faith are the heirs with Abram of the promises 
regardless of our ethnicity. When we partake of communion, we're remembering God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises, that he loved us enough to take what we deserved upon himself. He knew Abram and their heirs couldn't keep it, and yet he wanted Abram to know his promises were certain to be fulfilled. The promises go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where God promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Communion's not just just celebrating the new covenant, but it's assurance that God is faithful to keep his word no matter the cost to himself. His love for us is beyond comprehension. All history over the millennia came to the climax on the cross that we celebrate in communion. He did all this because he loves you and me. Communion celebrates that love that was promised so long ago when God went through that blood. And he did give us his only begotten son, his firstborn. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we celebrate communion, we remind ourselves that we are saved because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that's why it should be a time of reflection, remorse for what he had to do, repentance for our sins, and gratitude for the grace given to us. It should be done with our, our thoughts focused on all that it means to us. You would never indulge yourself in satiating your appetite standing at the foot of the cross. That's why Paul was rebuking those of the upper class in Corinth. But we also know our debt is paid and that we only need that proclamation until he returns. That's why it's a time of joy as well, of comfort and of hope. Because when he returns, we will no longer proclaim his death because all will know of it. We will be reveling in his life in ways that we've only begun to experience now. The work in us will be finished. We will experience eternity in his presence. And that is the only real happily ever after. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Without the blood of Jesus, none of us is worthy to take communion. But Paul is speaking here of doing so with indifference. If we take communion lightly, like any daily meal, we're taking the physical suffering of Jesus for us as a trivial thing. If we do so without loving his body, which is the church, one another, we make light of the greatest love ever shown. It's to make a mockery of that sacrifice that was to make us one with him. It's like Uzzah's hand touching the ark, making light of the holiness of God. Pastor Stephen Ohm said, if one is afflicted by sin, the supper is a comfort. If an individual is comfortable with sin, the supper is affliction. 
Repentant hearts yielded to God to whatever he directs, and they find comfort that table offers. If a heart is hardened and unwilling to forgive, resistant to God or apathetic, then we should refrain or we will find ourselves under God's severe discipline. We will have taken the most precious gift ever given as a trivial thing unworthy of reverence. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So first we examine our hearts as a member of the body of Christ who gave his life for us, how we are acting toward others in the body of Christ. What's our attitude toward what this all represents to us? Does it break our hearts that Jesus chose to do this to save us? Think about the wonder of what was done and then take communion and reverence and awe and with a heart of gratitude. Verse 29 to 31, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So to take communion lightly is to invite God's judgment upon oneself. Some of the church in Corinth were sick and even died because of that judgment. And God was, God was trying to show them through affliction that these attitudes were offensive to him. Paul spelled it out so they'd understand what was happening. The church didn't recognize judgment when it came. I've seen the same thing happen where someone who um, wanted to disturb the body of believers, who was intent on, on causing harm to the church, be afflicted. And when I approached them and asked them, do you understand why this is happening? They didn't have a clue. Their heart was too hard to understand it. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And it happens in our day as well. If we will examine our hearts and see what the issue is, we can avoid the severe discipline. I know some people consider church to be like a club. You can come and go as you please, attend or not attend on a whim, but God sees our unity as so much more. We are the bride of Christ. As individuals that make up this bride, we are either sullying her or adding to her glory. The woman is the glory of her husband. So we are bringing shame on our Savior or glory to him. Or as Brother Dan said, glory to the praise of, praise to the glory of his grace. Our unity and worship together are much more serious than most of us understand. And that's why factions are so sinful and so destructive. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Illness can, can be, not always, but it's many times it's God's discipline to keep us from going the way of the world. It's God's love to redirect our paths and break our hearts over our sinful attitudes. This verse is a severe warning for it implies that if we remain hardened, we will be condemned along with the world. It seems that if that was the case, we were never truly born again. Verse 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Paul's reminding them to act in love 
and in concern for one another. And that should be our behavior as well. There were more instructions that he to be delivered but when, when Paul arrived, but this was one of the most pressing ones that needed to be addressed quickly for the physical and spiritual health of the congregation. The factions seemed to be the wealthy versus the slaves. You know how amazing it was that a slave could be a church overseer of his own master. What a statement to the world. That is, unless the master didn't act like he respected the overseer. And that's what was happening. And similar situations happen today. The wealthy can be tempted to despise the poor elder or vice versa. Whenever we put ourselves in a different group from our brothers and sisters in Christ for any reason, social, economic, ethnicity, education, we're forgetting that we are family, that we're all sinners saved by grace. And that's what makes us a family. Ex-con, baker, business owner, corporate exec, gardener, we are all one in Christ. Amen? None of us is more important than another. We're going to see that emphasized in the next chapter. And that's one reason the world just can't figure us out. We don't fall into their prejudices, into their cliques. It's a harmony of different notes by various instruments that makes up Jesus' symphony. While Jewish men prayed, I thank you, God, that I was not born a woman or a slave or a Gentile. The church of Philippi began with an Asian businesswoman, a Greek slave girl, a Roman soldier, and probably a few prisoners. Thank God for John 3.16. God so loved the world. And that means there's hope for you and for me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So let's now celebrate communion with these truths in our hearts and minds. <clears throat>